Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Thank you, JJ, for that introduction. And I also want to thank all my listeners from all over the world. We are now in 51 different countries. This is so exciting. It also tells me that there are people from literally all over the world, all walks of life, that all want to hear the same message. And that is the message that there is hope, that there is sunshine after the storm. And we've heard so many stories of of people who have endured much, who have gained strength through what they have gone through, and are now successful and able to help others. My guest today is no exception to that, Mary Lee McDonald. I also want to thank my listeners because you are what makes this show a success, and that is for listening and for your comments and your reviews. It really does make a difference, and I thank you. Mary Lee is an award-winning author, a writing coach. She has a master's in English and creative writing, and she's also a caregiver advocate. So we're going to talk about two very different uh, things today. One of the things that Mary Lee is going to talk about is the stress that long-term care imposes on families and what happens to children in long-term care situations. Now, I think that we have heard a lot about this in recent months and years because of the people who are now taking care of their parents who are dealing with Alzheimer's. So that's the first thing that I personally thought of when I was looking over Mary Lee's um, bio. However, her story is quite different from that, and she is going to share that. Welcome, Mary Lee. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. Mary Lee, we'll start out with something that happened to you when you were a young woman that no young woman should have to go through. And I'm sure that this has given you incredible strength to get through the rest of your life because of what you had to endure. And that was at the young age of 25, while you are pregnant with your fifth child, you were widowed. So please share that story with us. Sure. Yeah. I uh, married my childhood sweetheart, John McDonald, who was a PhD student at Stanford. And after he got his degree, we were living in Germany. And on the very last day that we were living there, he went out to celebrate with a friend of his and was killed in a car accident. Oh, my goodness. I, I had already returned 
for Christmas to my mother-in-law's house in California. And so I got this news long distance over the phone. And I was six weeks pregnant. So you can imagine that uh, I, I remember the physical feeling of the floor kind of rising up underneath me mm. and then physically, physically just dropping down as if I were in an elevator. I, I didn't pass out, but uh, I certainly felt a kind of a shock sensation. And then I think I was pretty numb for a couple of days because... With that kind of news, your whole life mm-hmm. just changes in an instant. I, I when I think about the people who were, who's uh, who lost loved ones in uh, the twin towers, you know, mm-hmm. disaster. I, you know, when that happened, I my heart went out to them because I thought I, those those poor people, their whole lives have changed. That's right. And, and they don't know they don't know at that moment that they will be able to go on and that they will be able to find joy again that is unbelievable so how did you cope moment by moment hmm well with a lot of children you pretty much can't <laughs> let yourself fall apart i i think i've always been a person who preferred to keep busy rather than to just lay in bed and mm-hmm. suck my finger, <laughs> suck my thumb, you know. You didn't have a pity party. You had things to do. I had things to do. And and the first of those things was to find us all a place to live. I wanted to live close to family. Family is incredibly support important when you're dealing with that kind of news, that kind of stress. And I think just being around people who share the memory of the person you've you've lost, as well as people who are every once in a while capable of pitching in and babysitting, uh, that's, that's really a key thing. That was a key thing for me. I had really good family support. My mother had died the year before my husband was killed, and I'm... My father had died two years before that. Oh, my goodness. So I really didn't have any any family support on my side, but my husband's family was just great. Um, so that's where I began. I began by finding a place to live. I began by painting the house. I began by helping my kids get acclimated and moved in and get settled in school. I began by helping the school figure out what was going on with my kids because my kids had had trauma around the issue of their father's death. And sometimes the school would tell me things that were going on there that I wasn't aware of at home because I just didn't see them. Or maybe I was still just... Mm-hmm. A little bit, a little bit um, stunned myself and not picking up all the clues. So, um, yeah, eventually, I, I think a turning point for me was one day when I looked out in the backyard and I saw a robin pulling a worm out of the out of the <laughs> soil, 
it was just, you know, robins, they're so comical. And this, <laughs> this worm was determined not to be eaten, and the robin was determined to pull it out. And we had this tug of war going on. And I thought, you know what? This is the way life is. You know, I wish John were here to see this, but I'm very glad to see it. I'm glad to smile at this very small moment of this sort of tragic, comic uh, natural, the natural cycle of things. Mm-hmm. This this little moment was was really important to me. And then, of course, life went on, and there were more moments like that. Moments where I could genuinely smile, and it would not be something I was trying to do. I mean, I wasn't mm-hmm. trying to mm-hmm. like make myself all happy again, uh, but it occurred naturally. And How old was your oldest child at the time? Huh. Well, she was uh, she was seven and a half. Wow. So, do they remember their daddy at all? Uh, no, the youngest ones don't. My daughter does, but the others they have. You know, the the next son kind of remembers his father, just as an outline, a silhouette right, right. in the doorway. So in a way, it's almost a blessing because you didn't have to cope with with that, would you say, or? Oh, yeah. I, you know, in some ways, I think, um, I think the hardest thing for me was just not having another adult to bounce, you know, ideas off of. Course. You know, you always want to know, where do you put the the discipline mm-hmm. line, mm-hmm. you know, and and kids have a way of sort of whittling, whittling away your resolve, you know. And I and John was my husband was always much more the sort of rational and calm and centered, and I'm much more an emotive person. So it would have been good to have that balance, and I didn't have it, and I didn't have it again for years and years. So um, that would have been good to have, but you know, apart from that, I just did the best I could, and that's all anyone can do. Did you take time to grieve eventually? Uh, I think yes, but grieving uh, took many different forms, and in some ways I think has been, I'm 70 now, so it has been a lifelong process. Okay. You know, I revisit the events of that that time in many different ways and um, I think as I've aged I've come to come to see that um, perhaps I gained strength just because of this horrible event I don't know if I told you in my bio but um, I was a carpenter for many years I never, never, never would have gone into that career had I not had to support my children. I was going to be a stay-at-home mom. That was it. I wasn't planning to work. I wanted to write. That had always been my aspiration, and John knew it. But I never would have worked in the all-male field of construction. (laughs) That is quite a switch. Yeah. But again, you know, I had to replace the breadwinner's income. That's right. That's right. So, and there were a lot of little mouths to feed at that point. So I needed to really think very practically. And 
I didn't want to incur more debt by going back to school. I didn't have an interest in going back to school. So anyway, just you I did worked what you have to do. Yes, you do what you have Absolutely. to do. Absolutely. And th- that alone, too, is strength because you feel like you're accomplishing something and you're not just sitting and having a pity party. Yeah. So that's uh, my hat's off to you for that. As a young woman, that's fabulous. And your children, I'm sure that they have really drawn from your strength as well and have watched you over the years. That must be a, a just an incredible um, role model for them. Yes, I feel very fortunate that that my kids love me and not only love me, I, I'm not... I'm not the uh, the center of the wheel, so to speak. I mean, they they love each other. We're a very close family. They keep in touch with each other. They plan things to do. Their kids are all very close. So we really, you know, I liken it to living, uh, to being in a, a rowboat. All the kids had a lot of responsibility very early on. But there was a book called The Country Bunny. I don't know if you remember remember that book or if your readers do. But the yes, country, I do. Yeah, The Country Bunny mm. was a, a mom who assigned all her kids little tasks. Some were the sweepers. Some set the table. Some made the beds. And so she was chosen by the Grandpa Easter Bunny to help deliver... Easter eggs on Easter. And my household was sort of organized that way. I mean, my kids had a lot of responsibility, but we all had a little piece of the oar. And that was a way that I was able to cope with what actually was a pretty tremendous responsibility, which was raising all these kids on my own. Mm -hmm. No kidding. And you pulled up your bootstraps and you did it. Yeah. <laughs> and then looking back, like I said, that must be an incredible role model for your own children. And I'm sure one of the reasons that you are a close family. Yeah. Now, you also had in another incredible experience in your life, which I think is um, part and parcel to some of the things that you have written. And that is the agonizing toll that a family goes through when someone they love is dying. Now, first of all, you had to go through a sudden death experience with your husband. Tell us about this other one in your life that made such an impact. So my husband's death was a lot like uh, having your arm amputated quickly and the second one was more like having your arm sawn off over a period of a year mm. or two. And this was the death of my son-in-law, the illness of my son-in-law, who came down with ALS. Oh, dear. Lou Gehrig's disease, for people who don't know yes. that term. It's amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. And that illness uh, occurred when he was 34 years old and when my daughter was about to give birth to her second child. And so this lovely, lovely young man, uh, just, you know, 
at the prime of life, certainly older, 10 years older, 9 years older than, no, uh, no, 8 years older than my husband was when, when John was killed, began dying very slowly. And my daughter and my son-in-law wanted to make the most of their time together. But that time was uh, a, a, a quite different... Losing someone to ALS is quite different from losing a person to sudden death because it's very hard to watch the physical changes that come about. There are also some psychological changes that occur just because the person is devastated by the disease and increasingly dependent and incapacitated. And that can be very, very hard, not just on the person who's got the disease, but on the family as well. So I ended up becoming um, my son-in-law's caregiver. And I did that for 10 full months and about a year and a half part-time. That was in the prelude to the time that I actually moved in and lived with them and tried to ease my daughter's burden. But I think that people who are in that long-term caregiving situation face a number of obstacles that I never faced when I was a widow. When I was a widow, I could make all the decisions and I could move on with my life. When you're the spouse of a person who is very ill but not dying immediately, you face a different kind of challenge, especially if you have young children in the, in the household. Because if there are young kids, they need to be the center of a family's life. That's uh-huh. at least normally that's what would happen. I mean, we have soccer moms. We have, <laughs> you know, it's a joke. Uh-huh. So you're a soccer mom, and every Saturday is spent at soccer, and probably Tuesday and Wednesday are as well. But you can't really do that when you have somebody with a very debilitating disease. It's hard to get them out of the house. There are extra preparations. They may require additional additional help eating and being dressed, and you may have to bathe them. And so all of these functions sap the energy of the spouse of a person who is that ill, as, as with Alzheimer's, caregivers with these long-term illnesses just get depleted. Uh, they're sleep-deprived, they're physically worn out. There really isn't any safety net for them. And when you add into that, uh, with the, in the case of a young man, you have this, this factor of children and who is paying attention to the children. Well, the caregiver's attention is divided. And in my daughter's case, she was working as well. She had to work. She had to maintain the family income. So they had to maintain, she had to work in order to have medical insurance. And luckily she had a job that wasn't an 80-hour-a-week job but could be contained, you know, 9 to 5. So... um, it's a very it's a very big challenge, and I think we really don't have a good system in this country for 
acknowledging that those kinds of burdens uh, are imposed on families and for realizing that we as a society could do a little bit more than we do do to help those families. You've raised some very interesting points and personally I relate with this 100% so as you were talking I was definitely choking back. I'll just share very briefly. My husband was in a car accident over 20 years ago, which left him with brain damage and physically disabled. So I totally relate with what you are saying about not only does it upset the entire household, and my children were still at home and young at the time, but it also, there's so many emotions and places that we go as caregivers that we probably weren't before. Many women do not stay in these situations because they are dealing with guilt. They are dealing with the many frustrations that come with it and the pain of watching someone else suffer. And there's knowing that there is nothing that you can do about it. And there are people that can't deal with that. And so divorce apparently is quite... Yeah. In this in these cases. Now, as a caregiver yourself, I'm sure that um I'm sure that you have realized that as well. Now your daughter obviously was so blessed to have you and your support there. I mean I can't even begin to imagine and your understanding and your empathy because of what you had gone through. I mean that's pat yourself on the back you are one very strong powerful woman in these both of these situations so continue is there anything else you want to share about that yeah i i think that families uh who have returning veterans with brain damage issues Mm. or physical issues their families often who have young children and so the veteran comes back and 24-7, that person is now the responsibility of their spouse, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who, again, is in this situation where they may also have to be dealing with kids. um, I think the statistics for divorce with ALS are that about 40% of women will leave the marriage if Mm -hmm. the spouse gets ALS, but about 90% of men if a woman gets it, if their spouse really, is that's really gets. interesting. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I mean, I think it speaks to uh, a sort of way we're acculturated to be nurturing, to try to extend yes, ourselves yes. as much as we can. But don't you think that women have a different set of coping mechanisms as well? Uh, yeah, I think we do. You know, childbirth alone. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we get into a lot of pain. (laughs) We're used to being sleepless. (laughs) And a few other things. Yeah. So at least we got a laugh in there. That's good. Yeah. (laughs) But no, I totally, you made some, you know, some excellent points. How, what role do you play now um, in this area? Are you a counsel? counseling people or no 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 uh you know free advice i mean i provide free advice (laughs) on any number of subjects okay and have you written on this subject 
Yes, I have. I've written nonfiction articles on uh, caregiving, and I have a, a blog about caregiving. And I try to post things having to do with caregiver health, because that is a big concern of mine. Everybody feels sorry for the patient, but mm-hmm. it's very easy to overlook the caregiver and what is happening to her or him in this situation. So I try to post things that have to do with, um, I just put an article up there recently about should you go on a diet? I mean, everybody, if they're in a caregiving situation, food is a big crutch. And especially if you're chained, <laughs> chained yes. at home, <laughs> you right. can't just run out to the gym whenever you want. So I put a, an article about uh, based on an interview I did with a really great weight loss woman who studies weight loss. She's a professor of a, a weight loss clinic, and basically she says, don't go on a diet. Just try to live a healthy life. Try to eat, make good food choices, but don't add to the stress of your life by intentionally going on a diet. And she has the very good documentation for why that's so. But anyway, so I write about that, and then I wrote a novel called Montpelier Tomorrow. And... The novel just won the gold medal for drama from Reader's Favorites International Book Awards. Wow. Yeah. Good for you. How yeah. how long has the book been out? Uh, the book came out in August of 2014. So, and it, it, it also was a finalist for the Eric Hoffer Awards, for the Indie Book Prizes, a um, number of other places have have given me an mm-hmm. add girl for that book but anyway and that so the, it is a novel though but it's based on the story yeah it's based on my experience as a caregiver for someone with ALS and I think what I, uh, I I've had interesting reactions I had one of my favorite favorite readers People contact me after they've read this book. They can find my email on my blog site. And I've heard from readers who've had experience as caregivers of people with ALS or with Alzheimer's or with Parkinson's. Those caregivers have contacted me and said, this is the first time I've ever been able to forgive myself Mm. for not being perfect. The caregiver, Colleen is an imperfect person. She misjudges her daughter. She misjudges her son-in-law in some respects. The dying man is not heroic. I mean, he's kind of a pain in the ass. Uh-huh. And anyone who's been a caregiver knows that there are moments like that when the person is very difficult to deal with. So I wanted to have people, I wanted to represent people who are under stress because I think there is a kind of Norman Rockwell view that, gee, we all want to be all gathered around the dying man, you know, Uh the happy ever after scenario. But in a long-term caregiving situation, you may be dealing with a young person who has an illness, who, who might have some personality changes, or you might be dealing with your own exhaustion, any number of things 
make it extremely hard to live up to anybody's idea of perfection, and that includes your own idea of perfection. So um, some people who've read the book said it was a tough read because they didn't find the characters likable. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I actually think that uh, if you're sleep-deprived <laughs> over a protracted period of time, it's very difficult to be your most angelic self. I think the angels sort of flit away, <laughs> and what's left are just kind of people hanging on by their fingernails, you know, trying their best to get by. And to me, that's where the real heroism is. It's in people doing the best they can and trying to find trying to hang on to the, their common humanity. Don't you find that like one of the things that I certainly discovered in this in this situation was when you're dealing with brain damage, you're dealing with so many or PTSD or you know some of these other ones. So you're dealing with so many emotions that are coming at you that you you aren't prepared for. Anger is um is is a big one. Yeah. And, and um you know you don't want to fight you don't want to argue and you're tired and like you said you know there's so many things that are coming at you and the person that you are taking care of is very angry at you and there's no reason and he doesn't even know why or she doesn't even know why and you you deal with that as well or did you deal with that in the book absolutely absolutely yes and in fact that's one of the reasons people have said they don't find tony very likable mm -hmm. because he's angry a lot and if people have not have not had the experience of dealing with somebody who's like that i mean first of all anyone who's an adult who suddenly is forced to become a dependent again can yes, yes, yes. can resent that will resent that and they don't have always have you know superhuman control over their emotions there are personality changes that go along with brain damage. In fact, with ALS, you know, people always say, oh, it's such a, a tragedy that the person's mind is intact. But in fact, in about 30% of the cases, people with ALS do have what's called frontal lobe involvement, mm -hmm. meaning that their frontal lobe of their brain is compromised by the disease, and that frontal lobe is what makes people incapable of having empathy with others. And so if you have a person who's, who's angry and also has frontal lobe involvement, it means they may not even be aware that they're not able to be empathetic with the the many tasks their caregivers must perform, or they can't be empathetic with care their caregivers' exhaustion. They can't understand it. They're not <clears throat> physiologically capable of understanding it. So that's one aspect of, of what Very is in that book. Very yeah. interesting. And what kind of ending does, I mean, I don't want you to tell us the ending, but I mean, does, does it end after he dies? Or? No. Okay. No, no, no. It's uh I think the ending is a, a surprise. Okay. To readers. <laughs> yeah, I think that is what I the whole book is driving toward that ending. Toward Tony being, you know, you're just waiting for him to take his last breath. 
and to <laughs> allow both the caregiver and her daughter and the children to get back to a more normal life, one that is not spent feeding him six hours a day, uh-huh. say. But that's not what happens. The ending is totally different from that. And um, So it's got some mystery in it. Yeah, mystery. Yeah, people, people, I mean, when I wrote the ending, I was, tears were literally streaming down my face. And when I was, when I was even proofreading the ending, I just felt like I don't want to be with this ending one more time. So I went over to a friend's house and sat (laughs) at their barbecue table (laughs) while I read it. And again, tears were streaming down my face. So, yeah, it's an ending that, you know, that feels really right to me. And um, I hope other readers I, most other readers have said they really, really uh, cried when they read it. It's The book is actually, I don't know, number one or two. It's, it keeps bouncing around a lot. But on Goodreads, there's a thing called Listopia. And they have one of the categories, which is books you need tissues to read. So uh-huh. that book is number one or two on books you need tissues to read. And it, it's on um, Amazon, right? Oh, yeah. It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble. Um, there's an, even an e-book. I'm not thrilled with the e-book, but I mean with the, uh, it's even an audio book. I'm not thrilled with the audio book, but the other, other two I can vouch for. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to reading it. <laughs> and I'm sure that you have created the platform where many people are going to want to read it. So thank you for intriguing us there with that mystery. And um, so it's a, it's a good read. It's a compelling read, obviously. And it's a mystery. And it's a true story. And it's a novel. So I think we've covered all the bases, right, for, for reasons right. that people should pick it up. Yeah, and if, let me just mention one other thing, which is that if people really are in a caregiving situation or they're a caregiver for somebody with ALS, I don't think this is the book you should be reading now, mm. simply because if you're in the middle of it, it would be a very hard book to read. I think this is a book for people who, let's say you've taken care of somebody with Alzheimer's, this is enough different that I think it would would help readers identify those feelings and okay. come away with some 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 takeaways that would be of benefit to them. Good. That's good to know because that's what I was thinking about how to promote this as well. So I thank you for including that. That's excellent. Now tell us about your website. Yeah. Okay, well, I have two websites. One is my author's website and A lot of people, when they get a little time in their lives, and luckily from 55 on, I've had, you know, rather tranquil years compared to other years. Uh, My author's website uh, offers tips about writing, writing your first book, writing your first story, how to get those published, and that's at maryleemcdonald.org. Okay. And then my caregiving website is blog.maryleemcdonald.org and that one's specifically devoted to people it's not just me I mean I invite guest posts from anybody who's been a caregiver especially anybody who's been a long-term caregiver because everybody's story is unique and everybody's story is by 
the virtue of its uniqueness is universal. So I really urge anyone to contact me and I'd be very happy to guest host uh, your writing. Well, let's get it out there. Absolutely. And your books, tell us, and you did tell us about the one. What about your other ones? So if people don't want to read a depressing book, (laughs) (laughs) and Montpelier tomorrow uh, is, is a hard book to read. If you don't want to read that kind of book, then you might be interested in my other book, which is Bonds of Love and Blood. There's an ampersand where the and sign is, Bonds of Love and Blood. And these are 12 short stories that have all won literary prizes like the Barry Hanna Prize, the Ron Rash Award, um, various literary prizes in literary magazines. I'm a literary writer, and I have spent a lot of time doing this. If you like books by Margaret Atwood or Alice Munro or Tobias Wolfe or, oh, I could say Ernest Hemingway, um, although my work is less like his than, than it is like Alice Munro's. If you like stories about families and what it takes to hold families together and why sometimes the bonds between people in a family kind of chafe, then Mm. this is probably a a good book for you. The the stories take place all around the world, from Turkey to Canada to a beach in Thailand. So you get a little travel experience while (laughs) reading the book, too. And are these true stories, did you say? No, 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 no. Fiction. Okay, okay. All fiction. Okay. okay. Although, as um, Flaubert said, uh, Madame Bovary, c'est moi. So I think Madame Bovary is me, uh, he said. That's true of these stories. Okay. In each of okay. these stories, there's a little bit of me in the story. Okay. And it generally has to do with the feelings behind what's going on for the characters. And so what's next, Mary Lee? What's next is a book called The Vermilion Sea, and that's a novel set in 1769 about a young artist who's 16 years old and goes is plucked out of art school in France and sent along as the draftsman for an expedition to Baja, California. 1769, before the American Revolution. So historical fiction, that's what's next. Do you enjoy historical fiction? I do, I love it, yeah. So you'll probably be writing more of that as well. I will. I I actually have another book that I'm working on uh, set in California with the founding of the missions in California. And of course, I'm California native, so... This is right. This is right where I live. You know, California, the the, the El Camino Real, um, and I've I've had the fun of going over to the archives in Europe and delving into old historical records and uh, holding original documents in my. Oh, hand. so you enjoy the research as much as the as the story? Yeah, I'm a research junkie. Mm, that's wonderful. 
that I know a lot of people enjoy historical fiction and and there's a lot of work that's put into it so that's yeah. great absolutely okay so your closing thoughts Mary Lee we've covered quite a few bases from various types of emotions to your novels so is yeah. there anything you want to share to kind of wrap it up I think that just to say for the focus of your website I think it's really important for people to know that their lives have a long trajectory, that there is a life after caregiving. Eventually, if the person's ill, even if that person is ill for years and years and years, life will go on for the caregiver. And you cannot see that in the middle of it. You can't see that. I mean, I had no no perspective when I was a caregiver for my son-in-law that I was ever going to be able to get a semblance of my life back and, and a feeling of joy back. I mean, that, that was a grueling, grueling um, few years there. But eventually, hmm. you do get it back. And um, so to try to be be thinking about it and and building something for yourself even if you're in the middle of a caregiving thing uh, is is very important and and hanging on to the pieces of yourself the parts of yourself even if it's just finding small moments of joy like that robin pulling the worm out of the ground or like taking a walk around the neighborhood and seeing what kinds of flowers people are planting or just small things like that that uh, can help you get through it. One of the things that's been important in my life, and I'm sure that you will agree with this, is laughter. And I have made it my own personal mission for all these years of caregiving to do just that, to be sure that we laugh every day because it certainly helps squelch many of the other emotions. Do you agree with that? Has that been part and parcel to your uh, caregiving? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad you reminded me of that because I think laughter is an underappreciated coping mechanism. Mm -mm. I mean, if we look at how we cope with things, it's sort of to put our heads down and like mules go stubbornly forward. But if once in a while we put our head up and we look around and we see, wow, this is really kind of funny, this situation I'm in. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm kind of like a mule here or, or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is that we want to think about. Uh, yes, laughter is a coping mechanism and it can, it can cleanse, it can restore your body, it can... Build empty, relationship. Build relationship and empty out that feeling of stress that we walk yes. around yes. with. And it also, t- you know, I think it helps us not have pity parties because we're focusing on the opposite emotion. Yeah, that's right. Excellent. Thank you so much, Mary Lee. This well, has been, you. you know, very informative, certainly uplifting motivating, challenging, all those words that come with the territories that you discussed today. And I know that there are many people who are going to relate in different ways. And also your novels, I mean, they sound exciting. And I I personally can't wait to to pick up your um, 
the one that is going to make me cry. Oh, my, oh, oh don't cry. Oh, no, that's funny. okay. That's okay. I like to cry. <laughs> There's funny parts in there, too. I okay. mean, it's not okay. relentlessly. Crying it's is not good. Crying is good. <laughs> yeah, Montpelier tomorrow. Mount and the Pelier other one tomorrow, is short right. stories, a short story collection, uh, 12 short stories that will take you around the world and bring you right back home to yourself. And that's Bonds of Love and Blood. Well, all of those links will be on your show notes anyway. Okay. So there's everybody will have access to that as well as your interview and any way that they uh, can connect with you, whether it be through your website or your email or whatever. So we will stay connected. And I thank you so much, Mary Lee. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.